It was during the time of the Cold War, and communism and our own way of life were very much in people's minds, and he was speaking to that subject. And suddenly, though, I heard him saying, I love my little girls more than anything, and I said to myself, oh, no, don't, you can't, don't say that. But I had underestimated him. He went on, I would rather see my little girls die now, still believing in God, than have them grow up under communism and one day die no longer believing in God. <laughs> all right. Sorry about that. Uh, all right. I'll, I'll run this in. All right. Welcome back to The Left is Dead. Uh, after a false start here, we are here with Alex Fink, who is uh, working on a project called Other Web, which is an interesting news app to filter out, you know, junk news, which we will get into here in a moment. But um, sorry to make you do this again, but go ahead. if you want to explain what other news is and what you're kind of seeking to do with your project. Sure. So the company is actually called Other Web. We do have a product called Other News, which is our newsletter. Um, but yeah, so initially we started with just this crazy idea that it seems like information all around us is getting worse and worse. Every year it's getting more and more clickbaity. We're seeing more obvious junk around us. And it seems like there's nothing kind of there to trying to stop this tide. So we started with trying to use AI to evaluate content quality and create a nutrition label for each article. And then once we saw that people like the information that we're providing along with articles, then we created a platform called OtherWeb, where we aggregate content from all over the web, news, commentary, podcasts, research studies, everything we can get our crawlers on. And then we attach nutrition labels to each item. We eliminate the things that are obviously junk. And for everything that is left, we give our users as much control as possible so they can decide how to sort their feed, what to filter out of their feed, what to see and when, essentially. So before we go into what junk news is, I guess I'm, I'm interesting you say, uh, you know, nutrition labels. What kind of criteria are you weighing information on? You know, what are, you know, the way it would be calories or something like that on a nutrition label? What are you using to weigh each piece of news that you, the AI is crawling over? So similar to the way that we do with food, we try to identify simple, easy to explain elements that we can all agree on. Like for instance, is this headline clickbait or not? That's a fairly well-defined term, right? We call something clickbait if the headline doesn't quite match the body of the article and it uses language that is meant to attract attention. If I give the same article with the same headline and I show it to three people, chances are they will agree on whether or not it's clickbait or not. And so we just trained an AI model to detect it for us, which tends to agree with humans about 97% of the time, right? So it's not as good as human editors, but obviously it has no throughput limitations. It has no bad days. It has no hidden agendas because the code is open source, et cetera. So we have about 20 of those parameters that we defined that are all either relatively well-defined and everybody can agree on, or we use some academic definition and an academic data set to define it. It's, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, the way you're weighing things is you talk about clickbait um, quite a bit. And I think it's interesting that you talk about clickbait because this is what you define junk news as, as before we start recording, is content driven by ad revenue. Um, I guess I'll let you finish the question I was asking earlier before this. Uh, 
can you define a sort of definition between junk and active misinformation or misinformation in general or disinformation? All right. So with junk itself, there's many different types of content that I would define as junk, starting from the one that is the most obvious, sort of the low hanging fruit. When you open Google News and you see an article from CNN titled, Stop What You're Doing and Watch the Self and Play With Bubbles, obviously this is not news, even, even though you see it on Google News and CNN is the cable news network, right? Obviously that article has no information value whatsoever. And I can go into many different examples of these that I've kind of collected over the past few months, but this is 90% of the content around us right now. It's content that if you never hear about it, it will not change your day in any way. Right? There's nothing you can do with this information, even to the extent that you can call it information. Now, once you get rid of that, you're left with maybe the one-tenth of content that at least has some information embedded in it. And here, of course, some of it is real reporting. Some of it is intentional disinformation by foreign governments or by other nefarious actors. Some of it is just reported too early before the facts are known, and therefore it ends up misinforming you uh, because what it says will turn out to be wrong a week from now. And you have a lot of different variations of this. And here, I think the best we can do really is cross-reference multiple sources and perhaps just look at the language that the author of the article uses because some articles are obviously meant to inform and some articles are obviously meant to persuade. And there's a pretty big difference between the language you use when you do one or the other. And so we don't really try to evaluate whether the underlying claim is true or not because of often it's just impossible, right? If you say there's a lion in your kitchen right now, I'm not going to break into your house to see if there's a lion there, but I can just look at the language you're using and see, okay, you made a claim. Is there an external source that goes along with that claim? Are there photos? Are there third-party accounts sort of corroborating your claim, et cetera? So just looking at the forum the way that a peer reviewer would look at the forum when they evaluate somebody's research study or paper that they're trying to publish. Uh, I think that also eliminates a very large percentage of misinformation and disinformation. Now, if something is really well made and somebody spent months trying to fake a particular story, then I don't think anybody's going to catch it with the tools that we have today. Maybe when we develop knowledge graphs that really know everything about the world, maybe then they can try to detect things like that. At this point, I don't think even fact checkers are doing a very good job. So we're just trying to focus more on forum because I think that gets rid of the majority of the bad stuff. Yeah, there. that's something I'm kind of wondering about. Uh, do you think that, I, I, what's your opinion between, say, journalism of the past before you know the information age and now? And do you think that, I mean, we're never really going to know who's trying to do misinformation at this point or disinformation with AI. So seeing where it pops up from is always going to be a problem. What do you think the tools in the future will be to kind of curb that? And yeah, again, with journalism as it was in the past, what do you think? I'll let you answer the first question, actually. I mean, what do you think will be the tools that to kind of curb disinformation in the future? And how, you know, with this unpredictability, like the conspiratorial thinking and things like that, how will we know where to even look to stop it? Yeah, so I think there's several different questions you asked here. Let me talk a little bit about what I think is the main difference between the journalism of 20 plus years ago and the journalism we yeah, see today. Um, 
And this is something that you touched upon earlier, because there is such an incentive to try to chase clicks and views, because this is how content is monetized. Essentially, whoever breaks a story first often gets most of the eyeballs. And so there is this race right now that didn't exist before to try to publish something as fast as possible. Because even if you're the New York Times and you're trying to adhere to good journalistic standards, you have to break a story as fast as possible. Otherwise, BuzzFeed or whoever will be the next BuzzFeed after this one dies is going to beat you to the story, right? And so if you look at the New York Times in the past six, seven years, the amount of stories that are published with a single anonymous source is something that is just hard to fathom. I think if you go back more than 20 years, then you're, you'll find stories like Watergate or the Pentagon Papers that could be published with one source or, or less, right? But, but you're never going to see this amount of stories that are published without proper double sourcing. But today it's the norm because nobody has time to do proper double sourcing. And you have a lot of these standards that have gone by the wayside, even though I'm sure journalists still want to do it. They just can't afford right. to, in a sense. And I don't know if that is reversible without changing the actual incentive. And this is in part what we're trying to do, right? If the incentive today is just clicks and views, and your payout is essentially number of clicks times cost per click, then I don't think the standard is going to change back to what it was before. We have to add the third factor to this formula, which is some sort of a quality score that maybe stories without two sources shouldn't score as high and therefore shouldn't pay right. as much. And so we have a really crude way to do that. Sorry, mm -hmm. to just kind of finish the, finish the thought. All we can do is filter things in or out, right? We can't really change the payout. We can just make sure that if an article is bad and doesn't have enough sourcing, it will get less eyeballs, at least on our platform. But I hope that eventually ad platforms will catch on and also introduce some sort of a quality score that allows advertisers to decide, I'm going to pay less for lower quality stories. Yeah, I mean, ideally, you know, you wouldn't know, you wouldn't be so detached from where your ads appear when you purchase them through like AdSense or something like that. But as far as the journalism of the past goes, I mean, we kind of saw single sourcing or sourcing from sources considered reputable, like say like the Gary Webb case in the 80s. I mean, there was... The New York Times asked the CIA if they were doing drug trafficking. It was the CIA who gave the statements that no, they weren't, you know, that kind of ruined web. But do you think that there's a danger between yeah. sort of the old media, the way they gatekept information, or is the, the trade-off worth making to go into the sort of new media where you can get information from so many sources? I don't think that's honestly a choice we're going to right. consciously make, right? Things tend to evolve in a particular direction and we can't really stop it. What it seems like we're seeing right now is that it's evolving in a direction where the reader just cannot cope with the amount of different contradictory information that is coming their way. And so it's a little bit similar to what happened after the printing press was invented in the 1430s, right? What you saw afterwards, afterwards was 200 years of inquisitions and witch hunts and holy wars, most of which were caused by bad books. So I think we're kind of seeing a similar thing right now where obviously the democratization of publishing is good, just like it was back then. But we have this tough transition period where we have to help the readers develop tools to filter this junk. And so this is in part what made me drop what I was doing before, which is mostly cameras and computer vision, and switch to this problem. Because I think people need better tools to filter stuff. I don't know if our tools are the correct solution, 
there's just one experiment that hopefully will work. But if not, somebody else has to develop those tools. Otherwise, I don't think people who are used to the way things were can cope with the way things are. Really interesting. So recently, certain, let's say, large tech uh, platforms have become somewhat unusable. The blogger Curry Doctorow coined this term, pardon the phrase, um, enshittification of uh, various uh <laughs> Uh, for example, Google, Facebook is what he cites as examples of this uh, trend where publicly traded companies, in order to maximize shareholder value as they are legally required to, are trying to milk ad revenue and it's undermining the, the reason people go to the sites. So it's interesting. You said in an uh, interview with uh, the Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure that you've you've basically created something like a a search engine at a time when people aren't trying to create search engines like this for a certain social utility. Um, how do you contextualize your project at this stage of internet development or maybe even de-development? Yeah, so let me actually address the first part of that question first, because I think there's definitely a problem with C corporations because essentially they say what their mission is but then they cannot actually follow that mission because the moment it starts contradicting maximizing shareholder value, shareholder value wins, right? And so we actually registered our company as a public benefit corporation to at least be able to state a mission that is binding and that holds at least as much weight as maximizing shareholder value. Now, with regards to what we do in our platform, um, there are certain things that we do just because we think they should exist, which I know is... Perhaps not the way big companies do it, but I think in a startup, it's kind of acceptable. A lot of good things that we all take for granted today and that are big parts of successful companies were initially just a vanity project of one guy who thought this should exist, I'm going to build it, right? So building a search engine in part was that for us. Um, there are other parts of the other web that are like that. The fact that we have a built-in podcast player is just because I didn't like any of the existing podcast players. There's just no other reason. No, no user asked me to create it. I was the only user for it for a while. So we tend to create things like this, and hopefully some of them are good. Um, we also tend to create things that our users tell us we should create. Uh, now, the fact that existing platforms are becoming unusable, I think there is, besides just the fact that they have pressure to monetize using ads, I think what you're seeing is also that some of these companies have become so large that they don't really have any serious competition. And when that happens, now there's no incentive for them to actually make their users happy anymore because the users have nowhere else to go, or at least it's really hard to leave. So I think this is what happened to Google for a while. And hopefully now if they see some competition around the corner, they'll start focusing on users again. Because as long as Google is 92% of the market, at least in search engines, and switching from Google to anything else is really complicated to the point where most people don't even know how to do it, then yes, you're going to see six ads on every page. Because why not? Absolutely. I remember uh, what, there was this philosopher, Damon Horowitz. He had a TED Talk, um, and he helped develop this, uh, what he called a social search engine called Aardvark which I used briefly in its waning mm -hmm. days. The idea was like you ask a question and it hook you up with uh, 
experts on that particular question. Um, but unfortunately, it was it was bought out by Google, I think, and discontinued. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of interesting experiments with uh, search engine optimization, news aggregators. And uh, I just from a historical perspective, seeing where news media is going, um, this is a really interesting project. I don't know. And I should mention that in our case, there is a particular use case for the search engine and why mm. we had to have our own um, that is also in itself an experiment. So I had this hypothesis that let's say you and I are talking and you mentioned a term I don't know. My natural reaction is going to be to ask you, what's that? Right. But online, it seems like I don't have a way to ask what's that. I have to do this really weird thing of opening another browser window typing something into the address bar, clicking enter, selecting from a list of results. And hopefully it's going to match the keyword that I typed, but the keyword that I typed might not actually represent the thing that I really wanted to know, right? So it's an odd behavior that we developed because of Google, because Google was so much better than everything else 20 years ago that this method worked and all the other methods didn't. But I don't think it's the right way to actually research something or to drill right, down right. into a topic. So in the other web, we wanted to recreate the what's that experience by if you see a phrase you want to know more about, then you just highlight it. And on the web, you right click on mobile. You don't even need to right click. A menu just appears and you can search for it on the web or in the research studies or on Wikipedia or on any other source that you think is going to be the best one for this term. Now, to do that, we needed our own search engine because performing this entire sequence and then giving you Bing results or Google results, we tried it initially. And then let's say you search something about laptops. Instead of getting more information about laptops, you just got a bunch of links to websites that have affiliate links to website uh, to laptop resellers, right? It's all link farms in some sense. And so just because I wanted to disable the affiliate link farms, we had to create our own search engine that has filters in it to disable this kind of stuff. Interesting. Huh. huh. So as far as, you know, how you compile information that all makes sense, what do you think will be a force that will kind of drive people to seek better information? Because the way it seems now, people kind of silo themselves off. Obviously, social media has funneled us into a few key places where we get most of our information. Um, do you see a big demand for better sources out there? I think there's definitely a demand. I don't think it's 100% of the market. Probably it's something like 10 to 20% of people that are trying to seek out better ways to find information. And right now it's really time consuming. So maybe our selling point to them is we just make it faster for you to be able to find good sources, to be able to consume information from a variety of sources so you can cross-reference. and know if one side is saying something but the other one isn't, maybe it's not quite true just yet. And you should wait until both sides are saying it to know that it's definitely true. Things like that. Now, once we can get a small group of people to kind of show that there's demand for this, I'm hoping that it will have secondary effects on the entire ecosystem. So to use a food analogy, once Whole Foods exists and shows that people are willing to pay more for high quality food, then suddenly Walmart carries organic food. There was no reason for Walmart to do that before, but now they know that their customers are demanding it. So 
we don't know if the kind of platform we created right now can ever be a major the majority, right? But I think it can show to the rest of the ecosystem that there is demand for it if we succeed. Um, right now, we're at almost half a million users. So, so far, so good. But I think we need to get to five or 10 million before people really start noticing that this is a trend. Well, yeah, I guess... Um... You know, I brought up sort of how information was gatekept or funneled under, you know, traditional forms of media. Do you think that that's kind of happened under the tech giants as far as like Twitter? And obviously people want an alternative to these things because everyone just talks about how much they hate being on them, right? Um, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, yeah. whatever. Do you think that, you know, people just don't understand that there could be an alternative out there? And do you think there is a sort of urge for an alternative that people don't even quite understand that they have yet? No, I think there's definitely a big urge. It's just that different people are seeking different things. So there's a group of people that is looking at Facebook and they think the information here is junk. I want a better source. But there's a very large group of people that looked at Facebook and said, this is not interesting enough. I don't get my dopamine hits frequently enough. And they switched to TikTok. Right? And so you're seeing all of these movements happen in parallel. TikTok videos get shorter and shorter. Podcasts are getting longer and longer. So it's not that there's one direction in which all people in the world are going to go to. You're going to see these different evolutions in different directions. Some of them in the direction of just being addicted for longer periods of time, which is what TikTok is, right? If I think Facebook at the peak, people were spending 25 minutes a session on it. The average session on TikTok right now, I'm pretty sure it's north of an hour already, right? So it's much more addictive than what Facebook ever was. And whatever is going to come after it is probably going to be even more addictive. It will be the fentanyl to TikTok's heroin, I guess. Um, but we're trying to create another direction of a race towards quality, towards trying to just select information, not based on right versus left, but based on down versus up. And hopefully some number of people will follow us in that direction and Maybe others will catch on and decide that it's also a worthwhile direction to pursue. What, what I kind of see is, and let me know if you agree, do you think that Silicon Valley is like the way it was where it was free credit for so long, you know, there was just money flowing into these companies like Facebook and things like that. Do you think Silicon Valley is kind of overstretched as far as like their influence goes in social media and things like that? And Because like you said, people want shorter and shorter content, but it seems to be whoever can optimize delivery of that first gets you and whatever will be the next TikTok will be the next thing like you said that'll be the fentanyl right but yeah you see instagram youtube parody parroting tiktok's format do you think that there's a sort of well you describe it in your uh, bio is it like a race to the bottom can you explain that yeah it is technically an arms race that's the best descriptor of it so i'll give you one stupid example just to kind of illustrate the point uh, at some point maybe around 10 or 12 years ago Somebody came up with the brilliant idea to put an autoplaying video at the top of an article, right? It didn't used to exist. And then suddenly somebody added it. At that point, they got better engagement than everybody, than everybody else around them. So what does everybody else have to do? They also have to put it. Now, I'm pretty sure that if any outlet right now polls their readers, do you like the autoplaying video at the top of articles? Every single outlet is going to hear a majority no. Their readers don't like it. But they can't disable it because if they disable it, they will get less engagement than their competitors. So I think you saw the same thing with social media. The reason it's getting more and more addictive is because whoever makes it more addictive makes more money. And then whoever wants to disrupt them 
also wants to make money. So they have to make their thing even more addictive than that. So it's an arms race where you have to introduce some sort of new incentive to break the cycle. Otherwise, we're going to get to the bottom of this. Okay. Nathan, do you have something? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, this is also a period where um, media literacy is a major problem. It has uh, political and social implications. Um, in some cases, misinfo and disinfo even uh, wrecks families in some cases, as we've seen with, for example, QAnon or uh, certain cult movements, etc. And uh, I'm curious... <sighs> So, so this is a tool to help aid the uh, development of media literacy is how, how I, I'm understanding this. And it, it's coming at a time where I've seen some evidence that the Zoomer generation is actually suffering some declining uh, tech literacy. So for example, I've heard that there are now college students that don't know how to use Microsoft Word or Excel or certain uh, software applications and whatnot. And it, I just think it's interesting that there doesn't seem to be any easy solutions to what people prioritize. And I think it's interesting your background working in cameras, working in uh, the creation of a mass of uh, data, and that you've shifted to this problem of what's significant? What do you prioritize? Metadata info, meta info. Um, Sorry, I, I thought that was working up to your question. I'm just putting that on the table here, I guess. Right. No, I, I can pick up from that. Uh, so it, it's true that essentially at some point I decided that I'm creating more data, but our problem isn't not enough data. Our problem seems to be that we're not making sense of whatever we, it is that we're already producing. But I want to address an earlier part of what you said. I think there is this kind of known fallacy that every single generation thinks that now things are getting worse, right? But in reality, I was born in the Soviet Union. Misinformation today is not that. <laughs> I've seen much worse, right? Um, and a part of, again, why I am so interested in this particular topic is I have these vivid memories of my parents waking up at 4 a.m., locking themselves in the bathroom and turning the radio on to listen to Voice of America because they wanted to hear real news. And that was the only way they can do that but they needed to make sure the neighbors don't know that they are listening to it, even though maybe some of the neighbors were doing the same thing, right? So we're not quite at that state. It does seem like we are trying to copy some of the worst elements of it for some reason, but it's not like misinformation or disinformation are new. They have been with us for a very long time. What we're seeing right now, it seems to be more like what Steve Bannon at some point described as flooding the zone with shit. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this yeah, on this podcast, yep, but like it's that level of it's that level of disinformation that we're seeing, right? It's not that there's one coherent false narrative out there. It's that there are so many things floating around at the same time that nobody can make sense of anything unless we give them some tools to to make order in things. Yeah, it's really tricky because on on, on the one hand, at a certain point, you have to like educate a citizenry through hopefully public education and also through continuing education in adulthood to have media literacy in general and be able to tell good from bad sources. But they can't just do that on their own. Like they need tools to do it. 
And so it's a back and forth of like, whose responsibility is it for the spread of mis and dif- disinfo? It's a, it's an interesting philosophical problem. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And my approach as an engineer, maybe I have my own biases, right? I'm sure that maybe an educator would say, well, education is the solution. We need to teach people to be smarter. We need to teach people to think critically. I'm looking at this and I'm thinking people are generally pretty lazy. They're going to just take the easy route. And so if you give them two tools, one of them good, the other one is bad, they're not going to use the good one. They're going to use the one that is easier to use. And so that should be our focus as engineers. It's to try to create better tools that will actually make it easier for people to make the right choice. Makes sense. Makes sense. I'm with you so far. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I want to touch back actually on what Nathan was saying about young people and technology. Um, do you think that there is sort of, yeah, it's who's going to teach them this thing? But um, people are wary about AI, obviously. Uh, I have my own reservations about, you know, who's make you know, who's creating obviously open source helps a lot of things but who's like working on these things you know obviously uh elon's out there with his idea of truth gpt and all this goofy stuff um do you think that there's become a sort of over you know a lot of people are using chat gpt to write papers and stuff like that do you think that there's become a sort of over reliance on tech that has made people sort of regress in their understanding of it like um a lot of kids you know use talk to text and things like that there's a lot of features that are just taking out of like a lot of the actual work from tech and do you think that is doing damage in the long run well i think again to some extent it has always been the case right when we started getting gps's in our cars we became much worse at navigating with our eyes and with a map and with a compass right so every time we invent a new technology there is a bit of over-reliance on it and people become less competent at whatever preceded it so I think your example of young people not knowing how to use Microsoft Word might be another example of this, where maybe they didn't have to because they have some more efficient tool that incorporates that into yeah, no. a larger process. Now, with ChatGPT, though, there might be a new element to this thing, right? ChatGPT is obviously just an example. It's not even the product itself. It's just a user-facing right. interface, right? Um, GPT-4 is the product. Um, and there is obviously already GPT-5 and many others in the works. And I think what these things are showing us is that right now, AI is essentially a bigger, faster brain. It doesn't have all the features of our existing fa- uh, brains, but it has a lot of them. And so if you can teach a person to do anything, chances are you can teach AI to do it better or at least faster. So we are approaching this point where if something can be taught, it's probably not worth learning anymore. You should only learn the things that you can get through with experience and with tinkering. Because if somebody can explain it to you in a lesson, then AI can be trained to do it better than you. So maybe the young people actually have it better than us in some sense, or at least they're approaching things the correct way where they're looking at some of the things that we're used to doing and they're saying there's no point in learning this anymore. By the time I need to go get a job, that job will not exist. I didn't know if they're actually going through this conscious process, but I'm just playing devil's advocate here and saying maybe they have a point. Maybe some of the things that we consider to be very important skills are not going to be important in a very short time. Now, I'm kind of a retrograde. I still prefer to use a mechanical watch. I still prefer to know how to do things manually without technology. Uh, But 
I don't know. Maybe it's only useful in case of an apocalypse and it's not useful in everyday <laughs> yeah, life. Anymore. I mean, you make a good point because I don't remember phone numbers anymore. And there was people before me who operated switchboards. You know, these are skills that aren't really relevant anymore. Um, and your GPS example is good that I, I do think that you're I haven't really looked at it that way. It's really interesting uh, that these are kind of tools. How do you think that AI will affect the job market going forward? Like right now, there's uh, it was in your newsletter today, actually, the things about the writer's strike and how ai has become a question in the writer's strike how do you think like i i obviously jobs like paralegal and things like that these things that have a search you know people would search large databases of information before are kind of being you know on the edge here now how do you think ai will affect the sort of job market in the future what is i don't know what is our economy going to do well, it yeah well it's definitely going to have a very large effect and in fact it will have a large effect on the knowledge economy before it does on the physical economy. So the we've been afraid of robots for yeah. a while, right? But it's actually very difficult still to build a robot that can consistently open doorknobs, right? That is a difficult task. And so as long as we have doors in our buildings, uh, robots are not going to outcompete humans in most endeavors. But when it comes to just shuffling information around, I think that most humans can be replaced. Now, if you look at almost every profession, the top 10% of the profession is probably not going to be replaced anytime soon, right? But AI can make those top 10% 10 times as effective, and then the other 90% aren't necessary anymore. So I think that's definitely coming. I don't think it's only coming for paralegals. I think most lawyers can be replaced, right? The trial lawyers probably cannot, right? Because AI is not going to show up in a courtroom and convince right. a jury anytime soon. But contract law, like I can tell you from my own experience, I'm an engineer, I never studied law, but I'm pretty good at analyzing contracts and finding errors that lawyers made. Why? Because it's a logical thing. You just follow some basic rules and you find what's wrong. So if I can be taught to do it without learning law, then AI can also learn how to do it and it can process a lot more legal oh, information yeah, than I have. I've already had GPT write me a contract. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it, it it's strange that it, yeah that the way it's affected the economy now, like a lot of people went into these sort of professional jobs, like the white collar jobs. That yeah, like you said, they weren't expected to be the ones replaced by technology, right? This is everyone feared the robot that could flip burgers yeah. or whatever. But now it's kind of coming for these positions that um probably did not think they were at threat, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, what do you yeah, think but, that, I, and this is a political show at the end of it, I mean, what do you think that sort of like some political solutions to this kind of shifting job economy, will, labor economy will be? I mean, are you UBI or? I don't know that there, yeah, I, I don't know. So I'm not a mm -hmm. big believer in UBI. I am a big believer in that the job that comes with the income is just as important as the income. So if you just give somebody money, but you don't give them, something that they can do every day, then they go nuts. That's sort of my experience. And so like to the extent that government needs to be needs to do universal anything, it's universal job programs and not just income. Now, I don't know if that is the solution. That was an early 20th century uh, position of many socialist parties, uh, universal employment. But uh, right. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> well, yes. Well, and, and universal basic income was a program from Milton Friedman <laughs> right. during the Nixon right. administration, right? So, so it used to be a right-wing program until it became a left-wing program. But my point is, I don't know if that is the solution. I think ultimately humanity will do what it always does and come up with just 
new professions that didn't exist before, but the transition is going to be painful. And I know this is a political show, but there is a topic that almost nobody touches even in politics today, which is that a lot of the pathologies we are seeing in kind of American life are still the results of the mechanization of agriculture in the 1910s and 1920s, right? A lot of the people who were displaced during that period, their ancestors today are still poor. And so those transitions sometimes take two or three generations to actually uh, go through the system in some sense. So we will find new professions. People are going to find things to do. But all those knowledge workers that are getting dis displaced, we might see those effects not even just in this generation, but for a few generations. To that come. is an excellent observation about the impact of the displacement of agriculture or labor. It's not an accident that um, places like in the southern United States, um, the underdeveloped areas are the places where sharecropping was dominant. And, and the places where you had human yep. farming in the north and upper Midwest, you know, tended to do better over the longer haul. But yeah, excellent observation. Um, sorry, I, I, I I've been studying like Oklahoma labor history stuff and <laughs> the populist movement and what, but yeah. Yeah, but, but the populist movement is the second part of this, right? Where, okay, Oklahoma and places like that were affected, but then you see those populations now that they had no jobs in Oklahoma moving right, north to right. big cities and settling in the center of most cities and those places are still the poorest yeah. parts of town right and so those jobs were never never replaced even once the people mm -hmm. themselves mm -hmm. moved and still going on you know in india uh displacement of farmers etc it, it, it's still going on yeah. yeah so we're probably going to see an even larger effect now i guess because the people being displaced are the higher income part of the income distribution so I don't know. I can't, I'm not really good at predicting stuff. That's not what engineers do, but there's definitely going to be a big shift. And so I don't know when my daughters become older enough to go to college, I'm not sure colleges will exist or be useful. It, it, we're at that point. Yeah. I guess. I mean, you talked about say having work as something to do. I mean, uh, when the early chat models are coming, you know, the, language models started coming out Zizek made a point um Slavo Zizek made a point where he's well my students can now have AI write papers and I'll have an AI read them and we can all go do what we want you know so I think there is something to um an end to like a the futurist idea of say well you'll be able to cook five things at once you know with the help of technology where technology is breaking out of the bounds of what we consider traditional roles so it is interesting you talk about new jobs new types of occupations like there's already people writing prompts for money and things like that you know um i think it's definitely interesting to see that do you think we're kind of breaking out of this old you know, the future like i said the futurist type model where a robot will help a worker put a car together faster or help a farmer till his fields faster do you think we're moving sort of past that approach to uh, obviously something we can't predict yeah i would add one parameter to what you just mentioned which is hedonic adaptation Right. If we're able to produce more with AI, we will, and we will still be unhappy and try to produce even more and want more. Right. And so I don't think that now that people are 10 times as productive, they will just start working four hours a week and painting the rest of the time. 
I think that they're still going to want to buy 10 times as much and therefore they will need to work 40 hours or more at something. Like this is what we've seen, right? People predicted that the work week will get shorter and shorter and it never did because I think people keep wanting more and more even as they get technically richer. And every model I've seen, whether it's the IPCC predicting uh, uh, what growth would look like for the rest of the century, it always predicts that we are something like nine times richer by the end of the century, right? And I don't think we're going to work less. We're just going to consume nine times more stuff, uh, but we'll keep working just as much. That's at least my yeah, gut. And that is true. And it is strange to see AI becoming such a thing because there is not a lot of material wealth left to consume between most people, you know? So this is sort of, do you think this is sort of replacing the, is content replacing the idea of material consumption? I don't know. Um, I don't know that you right. can even make a distinction to some extent, right? Like if you're being entertained by a physical thing versus being entertained by a dancing cat video, I don't know what is the difference. Like, is like I are would, atoms different than? I would say like the, the difference being like um, say the end, you know, the neoliberal '90s, where's the the trade off between you know, less jobs or lower paying jobs was cheaper consumer goods flooded in, you know, these were physical consumer goods, but now there doesn't even seem to be like, um, a lot of people don't have the ability to detain assets, like even a house. So I'm wondering if this is, you know, we saw the metaverse launch during the pandemic and things like that. Do you think there's going to be an attempt to sort of like digitize consumption, I guess is what I'm asking, like more fully. I mean, to some extent, to some extent, we've been seeing those attempts already, right? The metaverse itself, I'm a little bearish on that just because we have five or six senses, depends on how you count, but virtual reality only has two, right? They're trying to add more, but they're not doing it very well so far. And so it's virtual, but it's not reality so quite my yet. real estate is worthless. It will take a while. Yeah, like by maybe one day I'll be able to enjoy a glass of wine in virtual reality, but I'm pretty far from that. The smell is lacking, the taste is lacking, just the texture is lacking, right? The tactile sensation. Um, there are certain things you just cannot do. And the metaverse, again, I worked for a virtual reality company in the past. I was the VP engineering um, and well, it was kind of in the video side of things. And one of the things that was pretty obvious and it still hasn't been fixed is that if there's a mismatch between what your eyes are seeing and what your vestibular apparatus is sensing, then you end up getting nauseated or even throw up, right? So let's say you put on the AI, the VR goggles and you watch a video captured by a drone. Yeah. <laughs> Usually you throw up by the end. Yeah, <laughs> sounds terrible. Right? Like Because there is a mismatch between what you're supposed to be feeling if you're flying in that pattern and what your eyes are seeing when you're flying in that pattern. So I don't know if those things can be fixed, maybe with some sort of a tube going down our ear, but we're not quite there yet. And so at least for now, if people want to experience the sensation of flying really fast, they have to actually charter. Yeah, plane. <laughs> I, I think that my fear for like metaverse, this goes back to the sort of the futurist idea of technology. I think my fear for the metaverse is that companies will try to make the office but I, I don't know. Companies will try to make the office place more virtual, but at the same time, there's a whole real estate market that exists. So who knows? <laughs> it, it is. Well, and they already are. And it's kind of, it's working in some cases, <laughs> but I, I don't think it can be yeah. universal. 
I, I think that companies are sacrificing quite a bit by doing I, yeah, that. Yeah, I just, I counter my own argument. They're kind of, the, the commercial real estate market exists. So that can't collapse, obviously. <laughs> well, it, it's looking like it might, at least in the near term. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> again, I'm not good at predicting things. It just looks kind well, of shaky like, right we now. Work, <clears throat> we work in like, um, you know, we work owning most of the property in New York for a minute there. And the pandemic kind of, keeping people out of office space i was realized a lot of it wasn't needed but at the same time that there is the real estate market is obviously hugely crucial in the united states you know but i think even beyond that companies can be more mm -hmm. efficient if everybody's working from home but they can't really be more effective like when a person knows what their task is then yes you can probably do it faster if you're at home and there is no Nobody shouting over the cubicle wall to ask you something, but you're communicating right. with people much less. There is much less chance encounter. And so there is a much greater chance that you're working on the wrong thing. You'll do it really efficiently, but it will turn out that three of you were doing the same thing at the same time, or that somebody else already pivoted and changed mm -hmm. the design. And so the thing that you just built isn't necessary anymore. Or maybe just the fact that you didn't meet accidentally in the corridor and chat about things will just make some idea impossible to even find in the first place. And so there was something that could have been built if you were in an office, but isn't being built because everybody's sitting in their house. So I think maybe in some markets it might work, but in the long run, my actual prediction, which is kind of contrarian these days, is that the companies that maintain at least some office presence are going to win in technology. Yeah, there definitely is a sort of human element that can't be replaced there, I, I suppose. And I think that that's what I think the metaverse kind of was an attempt to do. But yeah, like you said, it's not it's not natural. There's so many economic factors that go into this, too. But it, it is strange to see. Um, I think that I don't know. Do you worry at all about, say, AI's effect on alienation or anything? You talk about, you know, how people are more in their homes and kind of focusing on their own thing. Uh, we're obviously already severely alienated. I personally think that part of that is due to capitalism I, I follow some of the doctrines of marx but um i think that you know do you think that technology is having an alienating effect and do we have to change the way we think about say monetization or something like that in order to change how we view or how we interact with technology essentially because I'm, i worry about like there's so many advertisements for like chatbots and things like that it's like it's becoming very strange that people can't talk on the phone without anxiety and things like that yeah, so those things were mm -hmm. happening before oh, AI, absolutely. right? Um, so I, I think if you look at studies, then the number of people that have zero close friends is constantly growing. I think it's something like 15% of men and 10% of women right now, um, which yeah. is already pretty scary, but it's growing really fast. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see it at close to 50% sometime soon. Um, at the same time, people are spending a lot of time on things that are called social media, but have essentially no social element to it, other than maybe writing some nasty comments under somebody's video. So yes, it's happening. We are getting alienated from each other. I don't know if AI is going to make it better or worse, or it will be neutral in this regard. It seems to be more a function of social media than anything. And hopefully we'll see a backlash. I don't know if this is a secular trend or it's one of these things where we just overreacted and we flew into a particular extreme and now we're going to reverse to the mean. It's hard for me to see us continuing in the same direction for a very long time. So 
I hope that there is a reversal to the mean coming at least with social interaction because ultimately we are a social animal. And so those of us who choose solitary confinement probably don't survive and don't procreate. Yeah, it's it's strange to see where we're at now, and especially after the pandemic, things turned you know so odd, um, with the way people are kind of comfortable shutting in now. But yeah, I think that I agree. We are social, and obviously, a lot of this alienation does come down the pipeline beforehand. You know, there's like I said, I'm I subscribe to some of Marx's views. I think alienation is sort of natural output, and social media definitely hasn't helped. Um, do you think there are ways that like AI can help with these problems that you hit? Potentially. So AI is a really par powerful tool, right? We can use it to make a salad. Like it's like a kitchen knife. You can use it to make a salad or to stab someone. It's up to you. So I'm sure that some people will try to use AI to do bad things, to create weapons and things like that. And some people will try to use AI to clean up the news ecosystem like we're doing or to do something else to this extent. So maybe there are applications that someone will come up with where they use AI to make somebody who's socially awkward socialize more. I don't know, but that seems quite possible that maybe a doctor can't figure out or a coach can't figure it out, but AI will. Will that be the likely outcome? It's hard to tell. So I think the right way to look at this is there is a wide variety of futures available to us, and there is some sort of a probabilistic distribution between them we can try to increase the probability of the good futures happening. But I don't even think we can guarantee any, any particular outcome because chance events are still going to have a say in the matter. Interesting. So I think I'm going to go ahead and go with one more question here, unless uh, James has something else. But um, James was uh, thinking, um, there's been calls for the nationalization of Google and Facebook. Uh, by both the left and right wing, which I, I think has been interesting to see. Um, companies, as they are currently, seem to be bad at regulating speech, uh, doing administration, preventing um, harm via speech, or uh, preventing the proliferation of uh, various ills. Um, and people are calling for the federal governments to do something about it. Or the European Union, of course. The European Union does intervene in the internet sometimes. Um, Australia also. So what do you make of these calls to either nationalize the social platform or for government regulation of online speech and whatnot, these recent issues? I think there's uh, always a tendency when something is happening that you don't like, you have an urge to do something about it, and you try to use the only tool you have at your disposal, which in this case is the government. But we should ask ourselves, is the government going to be more competent at it? It's true that the current actors are bad, but it, does the government have a better track record of this? Again, I mentioned before, I was born in the Soviet Union. So my view on government regulating speech is it usually works even worse than what we're observing right now. So my general approach to this is I want to try to add some incentive to the market that will actually make doing the right thing and doing the profitable thing closer than they are right now. Right now, there's a huge gap between those things. But if we can try to bring them closer together, we'll start seeing better behavior. I think if the government actually steps in, then mm -hmm. first of all, it will do things really badly. And in fact, even in the optimistic scenario that the current generation of regulators does things the right way, 
the next generation is definitely going to screw it up. Um, the second thing that will happen is that if the government in the U.S. starts regulating things in a certain way, well, all of these things are going to move offshore because the governments elsewhere are going to do things in a different way. And so you'll end up with some sort of an odd fragmentation of these markets. Like maybe America will have its own internet, but there will be other freer internets elsewhere. And with AI, it will be even more bizarre because if America stops its own research, then maybe some other country beats us to the punch. Right. And if you think OpenAI is not the best company out there, wait till you see what Baidu is making. Right. Yeah. I think that Nathan actually reminded me of my what I wanted to ask, honestly. Um obviously the state's really unsure of how to regulate this at this point, right? You know, you see the bills where, oh, we want to ban algorithms for children and things like that. And the idea of banning VPNs in the United States, uh, essentially creating our own great firewall, you know, um, and yep. whether the technology is, you know, you say, look what Baidu's working on, but it's like whether the Chinese Chinese technology is state directed or we have private directed stuff here, do you feel that both have their unique dangers? And do you think that AI could actually potentially help regulate technology in the future? It potentially can, but then the question is who is writing the AI that does the regulation? So I think the only somewhat optimistic solution to this would be if it is software doing it, but the software has to be open source, right? Because otherwise I can't trust it any more than I trust the people right now. So again, this is sort of our approach. We make models do the editorial work, but those models are source available. You can look at the source of the model and the data set. That's the only way we think that people can trust us and hopefully that will be the standard everybody else has to follow in every other type of application for artificial intelligence. Now, with regards to government, you also have to consider that, I mean, again, I used to work in cameras. And so in cameras, some of the laws you have to consider are things like eavesdropping. You can't put the camera in a place where people might not know that it is there, right? So the law on eavesdropping in the US was written in 1973 and never amended. Yeah. That just gives you an idea of what it looks like when government regulates stuff. <laughs> right. And so given the speed with which AI is moving, I think government regulation is almost a bad joke. I think by the time government figures out how to turn right. their computer on, AI is going to completely yeah, it's not morph into something all septuagenarians. So it definitely doesn't, even though I assume they have younger staffers that can at least draw a diagram for them but but yes I, I don't know that it's going to work i think in general this kind of almost deontic model of writing regulations by the time you end up writing it and passing it it's already outdated right um, back in the day when we wrote moral laws at least they were good for a few hundred years and then two thousand years later they become somewhat obsolete but right now our laws are getting obsolete much faster at least the ones that have something to do with technology so I don't know if that's going to work. I think we really have to stop relying on this kind of heavy-handed approach of somebody telling everybody else what to do. And we have to really figure out, okay, this is going to evolve. We probably can't stop it from evolving. All we can do is try to figure out what selective pressures are driving the evolution. Right. Right. You cannot make sure that this line of evolution leads in a particular direction. All you can do is try to 
kind of shape the environment and hope that shaping the environment is going to lead evolution in a benign direction. Yeah. Yeah. The, to bring it kind of full circle, I suppose, you know, is that kind of the goal of your project uh, is that, you know, I think it was actually uh, Milton Friedman who also said, you know, what happens after the fall is whoever's ideas are left the most ideas on the ground kind of wins. Right. Do you think that, um, say consuming better media, consuming media in more positive ways and like more factually based ways, more, you know, being on planet earth while you consume media, do you think that is going to be, um, a sort of open source knowledge kind of project where people are going to need to seek out these other sources on their own? to better understand what's going on and what they're seeing happen with the world. Yeah, I'm hoping to right, avoid yeah, the yeah, fall. Yeah. So I'm not quite in the Milton Friedman <laughs> camp on this one. I think, again, going back to the example that we touched on before, the printing press, right? At some point after all these 200 years of holy wars and inquisitions and witch hunts, you get to an enlightenment, right? And so the question is, how do you shorten this period from 200 years to something manageable? Because this time we have nukes. And so 200 years is a long time. So our project and I think other projects like it, their ultimate goal, even if not everybody kind of phrases it the same way, is to try to accelerate this transition. Because we're obviously in a period of flux. Chances are bad stuff will happen in this flux. The question is, how do we get faster to the point where it's an actual step up for humanity? because we reached a new enlightenment, as opposed to we can't handle the holy wars and we blow ourselves up. Yeah, it's it definitely seems that there is no state solution under the current situation. Obviously, there is no state. There's no really state acting independently either, too. I think it's we're going to have to realize we're in a connected world here at this point. And um Learning to deal with that is going to have to rely essentially outside of governments because these governments aren't up to tackling the task of a global world like that, you know, um, a globally connected world and a world that's outpacing human thought as it is. But I, I, yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to add a caveat on that. I think the state does have a role and we can talk about some specific examples of things that I wish the United States Congress were doing, but it wasn't in the past mm -hmm. 10 years, right? We have examples, for example, like platforms making it extremely hard to switch to their competitors, essentially engaging in anti-competitive behavior to lock users into the platform. And it goes from really obvious benign stuff, like wherever it is that you're listening to podcasts right now, chances are you cannot export the list of podcasts that you're subscribed to, to then input it into another podcast player. Like the only way you can switch is to actually manually search mm -hmm. for every single podcast you follow. Like that is a very stupid example, but for some reason it exists, right? And then you go to slightly more complex examples like what if you're using iMessage to communicate with your friends who use iPhone right now and then you switch to Android, suddenly the messages they're sending you get magically lost, right? And you get all the way to examples like search engines where you actually have one company paying many other companies in the market to lock people into their searching, right? Which is really unusual and would probably be frowned upon in kind of previous regulatory regimes of antitrust laws. So that's one place where government can definitely step up and say, okay, if we want people to actually compete, and if we want those who prioritize the benefit of users to actually win, 
one of the things you need to do is make transitioning cheaper for users because then users will actually start moving towards whoever is better over time. And right now they can't really do that. So that's one example. The other example is we really do have kind of a weird liability regime in the US where a company can do a lot of moderation as they see fit, but at the same time, not be liable for anything that appears on the platform, right? We are an information platform, so I guess we're enjoying this regime as well. It's great for us, but it's certainly not logical. If you do moderation, I think you own whatever you didn't moderate, right? Whatever you chose to leave on the platform, especially if you then also have some sort of an algorithm that promotes it and chooses what people see. Like, and again, it's not the algorithm itself that is the problem here. It's the fact that you are making editorial decisions here. You're just doing them via software. So I'm not saying you need to cancel that regime entirely. Obviously, the internet would be very different and maybe wouldn't even exist in its current form without Section 230. But something is weird in the current system. It seems like we swung the pendulum too far into we can do whatever we want and we're not liable for anything. Yeah, I think that, you know, um, we've seen kind of the, this effect of no uh, real competition to have like this proprietary content or proprietary information. Like you said, iMessage is one. And I think the streaming, you know, streaming services are probably the best example of what's going to happen in like a highly competitive market is things have become fractured to a point where you can't have all the content anymore. Um, you think that people are, Tools like AI will help us better filter out what we see and what we even get more of what we actually want to consume rather than taking in all these junk sources that we see all day. <laughs> That's my hope. That's what we're trying to achieve. At the same time, you have to also consider that tools like AI will make generating junk much cheaper. And so there will be much more of it. So hopefully the filtering side will win, but the side that generates junk is yeah. competing pretty hard. Yeah, they're working overtime now. Yeah, well, yep. I I definitely want to see what you know. I signed up for the newsletter. I'm, I'm actually going to download the app when we get off here. But yeah, I I think it's interesting. These are interesting proposals. I mean, I fear the same thing as you, where the people making misinformation or disinformation, um, they're also working overtime. You know, I I hope there's more people out there like you doing projects like this. Because I, I am slightly nervous about where things go, especially with how sort of individualized people's ideologies have become, right? It's You can have a niche ideology and still fit into a major party here, but your ideology is technically is very niche at this point. What you care about, your pet issues and things like that are very niche. And I'm hoping that there is a sort of way to unify people under a better understanding. Well, So do I. I don't know. When you hit a milestone, do you want to come back on? Because I, I definitely have more to ask, but I have to shuffle it all around in my head. <laughs> but we definitely love to have you back. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, whenever you're up for it, we can talk again or continue. Yeah, that'd be great because I got a lot more dumb questions about AI. I don't know. I don't know anything. So, um, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me on. And yeah, let's uh, coordinate the time for me to uh, come back. And I guess we can have a more technical discussion yeah, about what it yeah, is. Yeah, because I have no mean. idea. So I would love that. Thank you for coming on. All right. All right sounds good. Yeah. Thanks, Alice. Yeah.
Thank you guys. It was great. Jordan, being six. Fall so hard down Brooklyn. Rollies that don't tick tock. All the Mars, that's losing time. Getting behind all these big rocks. I fall so hard on Shop too. I'm supposed to be locked up too. You skate what I skate. You and your girls get fucked up too. Fall so hard, this shit faded. Live on these for like six days. Gold bottles, skull models. Still in case of my sick days. Fall so hard, it's behave. Just might let you be gay. Shot towns, deep rolls, moving in this. PK. Fall so hard, I'm up and I'm gonna find it. That shit crack. The music was the uh, music. That shit crack. Are you afraid that's of that? That shit crack. Fall so hard, I'm up and I'm gonna find it. That shit crack. You that's shit crack. Robot ears. That shit crack. Just say it, thinking we get married at the mile. I say it, look at me, the crowd for you, ball. Come and meet me in the bathroom, stop. And show me why you deserve to have it all. Ball so hot. That shit crack. That shit crack. Ain't it, Jay? Ball so hot. What she order? What she order? Fish filet. Ball so hot. Yo, it's so cold. So cold. This whole thing. Ball so hot. Act like you ever be around motherfuckers like this a game. G girl, grab her hand. Fuck that bitch, she don't wanna dance She was my friends, but I'm in friends I'm just saying, Chris Williams ain't doing right If you ask me, cause I was saying I wore them Mary Kate ass Was Gucci my nigga? Was Louie my killer? Was drugs my dealer? What's that jacket, my chiller? Talk to say I'm the illest Cause I'm suffering from realness Got my niggas I do not I'm just realizing how much I don't fucking know about AI, I guess <laughs> I just assumed it like, oh, well, the web 3.0 guys lost and now it's AI, right? But Right, yeah. <laughs> the more I interact with it, the more crazy I see it is, you know? I think there is something to look at with like, like I was talking about in the interview, I don't know if it came across clearly, but like the idea of like futurist art back in the days when it was like, well, look at, you can have your fridge tell, it, basically it's the modern, you know, the internet of things as it is now, like your fridge can yeah. tell you when you need eggs, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that is what I see being the danger is both like the consumption culture and then just misinformation, obviously, because what, you know, I showed you before we started recording Fox or the GOP was the first one to make an all AI ad, you know? Yeah. And yeah. the fact that they're doing that already makes me a bit nervous. <laughs> a lot of philosophical problems that are kind of hard, yeah. to, like abstract and like, well, what are the consequences of this? I don't know. Yeah, it is strange. Like you know, he brought up a good point where um, the fucking fact that like knowledge economy workers are being replaced instead of like auto workers and things like that is pretty wild because nobody would have predicted this ten years ago. Yeah, yeah. It it was all about like when's the robot gonna take your job flipping burgers? You how dare you ask for twelve dollars? You know, right. So it'll be strange to see yeah, people with degrees, you know, advanced degrees kicked out of their spots, but. I, like I said, I had Chad GPT write me a contract for school already. I don't care, you know, and it knew what yeah. to do. I changed a little bit around, but I mean, it it's something that, yeah, to think that like things like medical, oh my God, this is going to replace the medical billers. Oh, yeah. Well, what the fuck? Well, we can have Medicare for all then. It's weird. Yeah, the his example of lawyers is really good because I think the U.S. is overproducing lawyers at a time when we don't have enough public defenders, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it is interesting to think like, how will certain processes go? Like even in criminal cases, like certainly, you know, say discovery or something like that, how will that go when there's access to all records by some type of machine learning, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it is just strange because like 
this is going to be a problem they actually have to deal with. This isn't going to be like this is the Democrats' new base of power for one thing. You know, to get more into the politics of it, the Democrats' new base of power is essentially like the white collar knowledge economy, sort exactly. of the PMC. Like, yeah. what are you going to do with those people? The boomers are going to retire. I mean, the people who love the GOP and stuff like that, they're going to retire. The younger people who love the GOP, they're going to be alienated no matter what because they're so fucking weird. That's on them. But yeah, the way it goes now, it's like uh, the people that have been kind of left behind is sort of actually, the, you know, the working class. Um, they're not really accounted for, but now the people who are accounted for are also going to be fucked. So it's going to be interesting to see. I don't know. I hope AI will host the podcast one day and we can just rake in money. It's <laughs> <laughs> my dream for it. But no, it was definitely a good conversation. Like I said, it left me, you know, saying at the end there, it left me more questions than answers, though. I definitely need to learn more about AI. I it's a strange type of thing, bro. And I hate the machines. Yeah. But, yeah. Oh well. <laughs> and I'll always type on a keyboard. I don't give a shit. <laughs> but I, I don't know. This is a good one. And uh, yeah. I think we'll definitely have him back. And we're going to have more questions about AI as it gets weirder, I'm sure. There we go. Yeah. Japan.